Hey, good morning, friends. Hey. Good morning. I'm going to go ahead and uh, interrupt you fairly quickly today. So go ahead and grab a seat. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verse 20. It's page 837 on the Bibles in the pews in case uh, you were using one of those today. So welcome, friends. So glad that you are here. We are in the second week of a series called The Upside Down Kingdom, where we are looking at the uh, gospel of Luke and particularly the, the revolutionary way of life that Jesus Christ summons um, from all who will enter his kingdom, his domain, his rule. And, and we see it here worked out in his famous Sermon on the Plain. And, and it's the shorter version of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. So there's some similarities and some differences here. And we are working through it and looking at the kind of character Jesus calls us to have as we follow him. Now, um, before I get into the text this morning, can I get a raise of hands from musicians in the room? Any musicians? Do we have any? It always reminds me how much of an engineer church we have. And, um, so, okay, musicians, great. Um, I know you can be both, but still. Um, as a high school student growing up, uh, I, uh, I was pretty into music. Um, I was in a really amazing punk rock band, and I won't tell you the name of it unless you buy me lunch. Uh, so, anyway... Uh, as a high school student uh, playing music, you notice that there's like three other kinds of high school music students. Um, there's the band kid, and this is the unfortunate soul who carries around very heavy, awkwardly shaped things from class to class, and sometimes has a denigrating sticker on his back, unbeknownst to him. Um, there is also what I call, I know, wah, wah, there's the, guita- the guitar mac. Now, what is a guitar Mac? I will tell you what a guitar Mac is. It is a strangely long-haired man, usually with an interesting smell, sometimes reminiscent of a plant legal in Washington. And basically, it is a dude who plays guitar to get the attention of the ladies, okay? It's a troubadour of sorts, and he's, he, um, he realizes that this thing might not work very well in high school, but it definitely works on college campuses where there's one guitar Mac to every 150 women. And... Uh, Somehow it seems to work for that guy. Um, I don't know how. So then uh, there is the jazz band kids. Now this is a th- sort of third class. This is a group of students who have figured out the loophole in the class crediting and scheduling system, where basically they realized I can screw around for an hour, three days a week, and get credit for it, having a jam session. Okay, so that was me. I was that kid. I was like, I can just hang out and jam for an hour. And so that was my first year of um, jazz band. The social structure was essentially that of the TV show Glee without the like singing or sexual tension. And so um, the next year, however, we got a new teacher, which in retrospect makes sense based on my last sentence. But um, so we get this new teacher and he had a totally different way of doing things. And there was this utter reversal of values. He devalued how we spent our time differently. He had different sets of expectations for us. And when you have a reversal of values like that, all of a sudden there is a clash between the expectations of a certain slacker rhythm section and a certain proud graduate of UW's music program. And I won't tell you who won other than I learned how to read music that year, even though I didn't want to. So... um, The truth is, when there's a change of leadership, there's a change of values, a change of patterns and priorities. When there's a change of leader in any family or organization, there's a change in the ways in which work gets done or things happen. 
And the reality that we come up against when we read through the Gospels, these eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, what we see repeatedly is the announcement of a kingdom. And kingdoms have this funny habit of having kings. See, there is no reign without a regent. There is a ruler, a a king, who is inaugurating a kingdom, a domain of God's rule. And that's really the focal point for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels, really, the underlying narrative flow is that the that. Once and for all, at long last, God is becoming king in and through the ministry of Jesus. Now, this change of rule, this change of administration, this new economy, if you will, will mean an utter reversal of values. See, in every family, every society, every social grouping, there are different value structures. There's things that go up at the top, and that society or family says, go for that, value that, pursue that. And there's these things down on the bottom, and you say, don't go for that, avoid that, don't get near that. Um, there are some things prized and some things pitied. And so Jesus' sermon here that begins in verse 20 is... Really, a total reversal and an utter revolution to the status quo of his own day. And what we find also a reversal of our own values. Jesus is here uh, not to make minor tweaks to your life, not to make minor tweaks to the empires of the world, but rather to inaugurate an entire new society and a revolutionary way of being human. Now, we see it in a sermon played out in terms of what is prized and what is pitied. It's a reversal of values. So let's listen this morning to the words of Jesus, the scriptures today that speak to the church. Let us um, hear from Christ who says this in verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. The word of the Lord for us. What in the world? That is a gnarly passage of scripture, is it not? Um, Blessed are the poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the rejected. Woe to the rich, the comfortable, the successful, the recognized and famous. One uh, scholar in his very pithy commentary says... God's people will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. Now, 
hang on a second. Compare those two lists in your head with me for a second, okay? One list seems a little more appealing than the other one, right? But we are to pity what the world thinks desirable. This morning, what I want to do is to get into three things. I want to look at the, the pitiable life of the old kingdom, the, pity of the life Jesus says is pitied, uh, the prized life of this upside-down kingdom we're speaking about that Jesus came to bring and inaugurate, and finally, how it shapes how we live. Now, first thing, the pitiable life of the, the old kingdom, the, the, the right-side-up kingdom, or what the world would say is uh, the right direction. And Jesus pronounces woe on a certain group of people. In fact, what he's doing here is he is contrasting two groups of people. He's saying there are two different lifestyles, two different competing value structures rooted in two different kinds of kingdoms or domains. And, and, and when you initially see the word woe, you might think, is he condemning or cursing these people? But it's actually literally the word alas, and it's actually a pronouncement of pity. So when someone says, woe to me, they're saying, look at me with pity, I'm really messed up. Like, things aren't good. Um, Jesus pities the fool, you could say. Okay, first hour, like they had never seen the A-team or something. I don't know, but right on, guys. Um, There's your Christological connection to Mr. T. So, that none of you were looking for when you came in this morning. So, what is this way of the old kingdom? What is, what is the way of the old kingdom that ought to be pitied? What are its priorities, its values, its pursuits? Uh, Jesus mentions four things. He says, Woe to you if you prize and prioritize wealth, comfort, success, and recognition. Okay, so first thing he says is, Woe to you who are rich. So, um, by the way, biblically speaking, if you are in the room today, that's you. You are the rich ones. Um, if you didn't worry about uh, sanitation, electricity, what you're going to eat today, you are the rich ones in biblical terms. Um, in any society, monetary wealth is usually a means of power, uh, power to be independent from others, power to influence outcomes favorably for yourself. Um, the wealthy in the Gospel of Luke, Luke are oftentimes those who are most out of touch with their need and dependence on God. Okay? So this is, this is the rich. Okay? The ones who have. Okay? Uh, secondly, Jesus says, Woe to you who are well fed now. Again, pat your tummy, everybody. Hands on the tummy. How you doing? You're hungry for lunch. Are you worried about where you're going to get it? No. Probably not. Maybe. But most likely not. Have you eaten something today? Did you have a chance or choice to eat something today? Maybe you chose not to, but yeah. See, that's you. You are the well-fed now. I'm the well-fed now. I had a yogurt this morning. Lots of probiotics. It's great. I'm well-fed. I'm not emaciated. Um, This means that you have physical desires satisfied. You're full. You're without want. These are the people who are satiated with the good things of life. Um, Have you ever noticed how physical comfort usually out-prioritizes spiritual maturity and health for us? I just read, like, uh, this is going to sound horrible to some of you, and in parts it was. I read hundreds of pages of medieval theology this week, and there's, yeah, it's like, whoa, wrong choice. Um, 
But uh, one of the things that's really fascinating about this crew is for about a thousand years, there was a reaction against the luxury of the church. The church had kind of come into power politically, and there's this reaction to get away from the luxuries of the church into monastic communities, or where you get monasteries vis-a-vis monks. Okay? And so you uh, had these people who were trying to get away from comfort in order to discipline their spiritual lives. And um, most of the time, when you look at like the monastic rules that people lived by, it like, sounds nice for maybe a weekend, but not forever. Um, so I'm right there with you. Like, physical comfort sounds a lot better. Like, I'm not signing up for any man- uh, monasteries. Monasteries, there we go. Um, doesn't sound good. Um, yet, the reality is, when faced between something that will be good for our hearts and something that will actually just feel good for our butts, we go for the butt, don't we? Yeah. All right, the third woe is those who laugh now. This is the, uh, where we kind of get this English word for gloat. The Greek word here is galeo. It's, it's, it's not people with a sense of humor. Jesus is not pronouncing pity on those who are funny. He's pronouncing pity on those who laugh in the presence of those weeping. Okay? This is essentially the kind of laughter that comes from like, we won, we beat you all. Okay? This is the successful one, the, the one who's laughing in the presence of the one weeping, at their expense most often. And then fourth, uh, the woe to those who are well spoken of by all, just like the false prophets of Israel's history. Celebrity, recognition, acclaim, Instagram followers. We want people to push the like button on our life, don't we? Because it's fun, it's kind of gratifying. Like, yeah, I am awesome! I always thought so. This confirms it. You know? It's like really fun. So this is the heart to climb the social ladder or to gain the reputation, to avoid criticism and social pushback. And just think for a second. He says, everyone, uh, woe to those who, everyone speaks well of you. What kind of integrity compromises does it require for everyone to speak well of you? I mean, think about that. This is the kind of person who can play to all sides, who probably doesn't stand for something. So these are the priorities that Jesus pronounces pity on. He says, I pity these states. And yet, when you look at each one, it's exactly what the world prizes. It's exactly how the world works. These are exactly the values we put at the top in our society as the idols to pursue Power and wealth, comfort and convenience, success and achievement, recognition and everybody liking you. Now, is Jesus saying, if you happen to have these things, you are to be pitied? Like those of you who drove here in your high-end car. Big mistake. Maybe. I don't know. Could be. Could not be. Um, Luke is not softening this list, right? Um, He is not spiritualizing this list. It is unflinching in its assessment of the way things really are. But notice that Luke is coming against people who prize these things, who make this their bottom line identity and value. Let me show you. Um, He's saying, look, if you prize this, if you pursue it, you have it the wrong way. He's saying, woe to you who make a priority or set your hearts on wealth, power, comfort, success, recognition. Uh, I'll show you how I get there. Luke 24, 
Or Luke 6, 24 says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Now, the word for comfort is a really interesting word. It's one of the most important Greek words in the New Testament. It is the word paraklesis. Now, paraklesis means deep comfort, deep solace, deep consolation. It is also the word used to describe, anyone? The Holy Spirit. Great. The rest of you were like, I didn't know that. How did those guys know that? I don't know. Um, but par- the paraclete is the comforter. This is the word Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. His ministry is that of consolation, comfort, and solace. Um, in lieu of Jesus departing, and he will also bring to mind all the things that Jesus taught. That's kind of John's theology of the Spirit there in chapter 14. But here he's saying, look, you have received your paraclesis, your deepest level of comfort from what you have. Okay? And so this means if, if you happen to have wealth, if you happen to have success, if you happen to be somebody that people think well of, you are not de facto a part of the world's kingdom. Jesus isn't saying that you are to be pitied if you happen to have these things in this season of your life. But he is saying, if these are the things that comfort you, if, if the thought of what you have, the thought of what people think of you, the thought of what you have achieved, if that's what really gives you consolation when you're going to sleep at night, says, then you've got it backwards. You've got it upside down. Right? You're to be pitied. Now, maybe you come to Cedar Mill and you take great notes and you even think like Jesus is the right way. You're even in a community group. You've gone for it. And it, yet you're really acting in a way and living in a way that these things are your prized pursuits. Then you've still got it mixed up. Right? Your soul, if it's most consoled by what you have, what you've done, or what others think of you, Jesus is saying, look, you're not living the life that God blesses. He's saying, look, when you set your heart on these things, they will disappoint you eventually. And therefore, I pity you. But here's the problem, friends. When, when we see these things in our life, or money, success, comfort, recognition, whatever, when we see those things, and we think to ourselves, that's what I should prize. The allure is that those are things that are offered now. Those are things that you get now. Look at Jesus. He keeps saying things like, you who are well-fed now. You who are we uh, laugh now. See, he says, when you live only for right now, when, when, when you live apart from delayed gratification and you only live for present instant gratification, you, you will always be misled in terms of what's really important. See? Uh, and so money is a now thing. It's something you, you might have or not have right now, right? Like some, some of you are like, I don't have it now. I hope it comes later. Like, yeah, totally. I get that. Some of you are like, I have lots of it now and I hope I never lose it later. Right? Yeah, I get that too. But, he said, but these are now things. Success is something now. Comfort is something now. Recognition is something right now. And frankly, if now is all you have, if you have a worldview that basically says now is kind of it, that's, that's really all I have to live for, then of course, reach out for these things and run after them. Prize them. See, the power and the allure here is that um, if you don't have any reason to believe in a different kind of future, secure whatever you can for yourself right now. Absolutely, of course. It's survival of the fittest. 
Now, not only is there a motivation of instant gratification, there's also the motivation that all of these things put you in the driver's seat. They're all ultimately about what I've achieved, what I've amassed to myself, what people think of me. They give the illusion that I'm in some control of my life. And you can have secular versions of this and you can have religious versions of this. You can say, look at all the things I've done for God. I'm doing a great job in ministry. I'm, uh, I'm doing all of these things and I can offer it up to God. That's what gives me meaning and worth and value. It's what I've performed. And this is basic common sense for the world. It makes utter sense. If there is no future, if there is no kingdom of God, then absolutely this makes the most sense. Unless the kingdom of God has broken into the world and come in Jesus Christ. See, for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they speak of the kingdom of God, they're talking about this theological concept where God's future has invaded the present. It's like a theological flux capacitor. Okay? And so, um, like 1.21 gigawatts. And like, that's what's going on when you read the Gospels. At least for me. I, anyway, so, um, Dr. Emmett Brown is your interpreter of Jesus. So, What's going on is you have the future inaugurated in the present. And the gospel writers are saying, if you want to know how you know that the future has arrived in Jesus, look no further than Easter Sunday. Because Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead and it's a foretaste and preview of where humanity's going. Saying, look, the resurrection is what defines the future for humanity that trusts him. And if that's true, if there is a future that's already now and not yet, then there's more to life than right now. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Okay, good. Um, So if I set my heart on power and comfort and success and recognition, there will be a day when I'll go hungry. There'll be a day when I'm disappointed by those things because they don't last. There'll be a day when I'm met with cosmic weeping and cosmic hunger for what will ultimately satisfy. So whether that's in this life or the next life, Jesus is saying, if all you hold on to is what you have amassed for yourself or what people think of you, then I'm really sorry for you because you're going to be so disappointed. Um, How many of you have ever been really hungry and in the moment said, I know what I'll do. I will go to Taco Bell. And it's amazing. And then within five minutes, what you thought would be paraclesis is like, Parapucus, and it's like bad, right? I happen to know somebody who takes their family there every Sunday, and his name rhymes with Maeve Pashera. And uh, it, it's like. It's not even a food. Those were his words. He's like, it's not even a food, but I love it. And I'm like, I do too. I fall into the same trap, and that's how, that's how I know. But he's saying, look, if that's what you cling to, this is the pattern for your life. If you pursue the right now, and what you gain, and what you have, and what people think of you, it's like this spiritual Taco Bell. And Jesus says, I, I, I pity the fool. <clears throat> I pity the fool. So, the second thing that I want to show you this morning is the prized life of the upside-down kingdom. The prized life. That Jesus says, this is the blessed life. What kind of life does Jesus say is blessed and and prized? Look at verses 20 through 23. Um, Who are the people who are blessed? The poor, the weeping, the hungry, the persecuted. And he says, they're blessed, which means they're full, they're satisfied, they're happy. These are the fortunate ones, in other words. 
Now, when Jesus conveys blessing, he's saying this is the type of person that gets what I offer. This is the kind of person who is getting what I'm offering. This is the group that gets the blessing. And Jesus um, kind of is, this is a bit mysterious here. Is he saying that poverty and grief are, are to be sought after? Like, should we go, like, should you get some more poverty and persecution in your life today? Like, is that the application of the sermon? I got to go, like, get hated. And go get poor. I'll help you out. <laughs> so what's he saying? Is Jesus saying that we ought to seek these things? Well, let's look at the verses here. Um, he's saying, look at who he's talking to. He says, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you poor, you who are hungry, you who weep now. He's speaking to the pious poor who are actually aligning themselves with him. Right? He's saying, look, you guys who are poor and who are also hated because of my name's sake, right? You're, you're linked in with me. You've aligned yourself with me because you are seeing your need readily and willingly and you're blessed, okay? You're the ones who receive the gift that I offer. You're the ones who get it. Um, look at the promises offered to this group. They receive the kingdom of God, the, the rule and reign of God. This, this is the people who come under God's rule. These are the people who will be satisfied these are the ones who will laugh with joy. These are the ones who present tense have great reward with God. When in heaven is not like um, some place far away someday. In heaven is in God's presence now. That's, again, like what the authors mean. Now, uh, do those promises hold weight and appeal in your life? The rule of God, deep satisfaction, deep joy lasting reward in God's presence right now? Does that, does that hold any sway? See, God's rule, his satisfaction, his joy, his reward, Jesus says these are the things that are offered to those who recognize that they don't have anything to offer. This is held out for those who recognize I've got nothing and come to me. And by the way, these are far more robust promises than the other list. See, both lists of woes and blessings, they have something to offer. The woe list has something to offer right now. But that, that blessing list that Jesus offers, those promises have something now and later. It's a much better list if you really think about it. And more importantly, even than the fact that there's, there's blessing here now and in the future, is the fact that these are promises given rather than commodities that are earned and kept by your own effort. You see, wealth, power, success, recognition, you have to constantly strive for those. You have to protect those. You have to uh, constantly be on guard against anybody who might take those. And yet, when you look at the promises of Jesus to those who are, who, who, who are living uh, the life he prizes, those are, those are promises given. No one can take them. You can't even earn them. It's something contingent on God's grace. And so when you don't have resources, you're aware of your need. You're receptive to grace because you know you can't supply your own needs. And the poor are blessed because they're the poor, the disciples who cling to God for what he offers and that they cannot supply on their own. They're in touch with their need. Um, this, this is, by the way, it's, it's materially poor. We're not talking about something spiritual, although Matthew goes and says the poor in spirit. In other words, what Luke is trying to say here is you cannot be middle class in spirit and come to Jesus. You can't be the person who says, hey, Jesus, I've earned some stuff for you. 
like, Jesus, check out my resume. Like, it's not too bad. I haven't bothered you much in my life, so can I call in a favor right now? You know, like, I'm, I, I basically stand on my own feet here before you. And we do that, right? We come to God and go, well, I, you know, I'm trying to manage my resume. Can I just show you what I've done? Like, you should hook me up here, God. And Luke is saying, look, I, Jesus could be no less disinterested in the resume you bring. He wants you to come to him acknowledging your need for him. So that's the type of person who gets what Jesus offers. But what about the capacity of people who trust Jesus for what he offers? The next thing I want to show you here is that what Jesus is saying is that you can tell the difference between a right-side-up and an upside-down kingdom person pretty clearly. See, Jesus' Jesus's followers can take poverty. They can take persecution. They can take grief. They're not so attached to power, comfort, success, and recognition that if they lose them, they lose their sense of self. Um, One of the ways you can tell which kingdom you're a part of is to see how do you handle grief? How do you handle financial loss? How do you handle loss of reputation? Is it the end of your story for you? Or is there more to your story? Actually, even more importantly, is how generous are you when you have those things? How humble are you when you do have those things? Sometimes God doesn't let us have those things because we can't handle them. He says, no, I want you to learn to trust me and follow me and find sufficiency in me. And if you're in Jesus' kingdom, you can actually handle loss. That doesn't mean you don't feel anything, but it means that you can still experience blessing in the midst of pain and loss. And it also means that you're capable of generosity to others when you're in the midst of plenty. I had a friend a couple years ago who, plenty of kids, uh, decent, good salary actually, and... um, found out his employer was corrupt and doing injustice, basically, in how the organization was being run. And he had a choice. Like, I can confront and basically, like, not have a job here, or I can just kind of keep and maintain the status quo. And uh, you could tell which kingdom he was in because he confronted and he lost the job. And you know what happened? He didn't lose his sense of self. He got deeper into his sense of self rooted in Christ. He didn't lose his joy. He got more joy, right? I mean, this was somebody who trusted God and realized there's more to me than what I have and my success within an organization. See, he could lose his job without losing himself. Later on in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable, a little story to tell a uh, tell a point. And uh, the parable is very interesting. It's a it's, it trips people up a lot, but it's a, it's a story between a, about a rich guy and a man named Lazarus. And the guy named Lazarus sits outside the rich guy's gate and he begs. And he's got nothing and he just longs for the crumbs that fall off of the rich guy's table and eventually both of them die. Okay? And the rich guy sees Lazarus and he's at, described as at Abraham's bosom. So at, he's like... he's. He's in paradise snuggling the great patriarch of the faith. Like, make of that what you will. I, I, I don't know. Um, and, then, and then the rich guy is apparently, in, he's, the text says Hades. He's, he's, he's suffering, he's in torment, he's in hell. And he, he's looking across and he says to Abraham, hey, make Lazarus dip his finger in some water and come over here and give me a drink. Right? So already tells you a little bit about the rich guy. He's in hell and he thinks somebody else should still come serve him. Like, this is an entitled guy who's like... 
not quite make connecting dots like, between like actions and consequences. So he's um he still is this entitled kind of guy. Like go make him serve me. And uh, Abraham says to the rich guy, my son, you had your good things. Lazarus had his bad things. Now he is comforted. He is being comforted. Right? Um, you know word that is parakleo. He's getting his deep comfort, his deep solace. Same text, uh, same book, same author, same word. And in other words, I think what Abraham is saying is, look, bud, your riches were way more to you than riches. They were your parakaleo. They were your comfort, your consolation. They summed you up. They defined you. And by the way, I think this is really fascinating. This is the only parable of Jesus at all in all of the New Testament where you get a named character. Everybody else is a stock character in Jesus' parables. Now you get a beggar, a guy who has nothing and nothing to offer, and he's named. He's dignified. He's Lazarus. And yet the rich guy's just a rich guy. He's just a rich guy. You know why he's just a rich guy? Because that's all he is. That's all he has. Lazarus has a name. He has nothing, but he's a person who's loved in the presence of God. So what happens when you lose what gives you meaning? You get leveled. You're laid waste. You're empty. You become nameless, just like the rich guy. I love this, verse 23. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. This feels crazy to us. And yet, saying, you have real present tense reward in the presence of God. And Jesus' followers, kingdom of God folks, can say, okay, I lost my riches, but I have real riches with God. I'm losing my reputation, but I have real reputation in standing before God right now. I'm not just what I own. I'm not just how my kids are doing. I'm not just what I have. I have a name. Do you know that about yourself? Are you named son and daughter of the king? Do you recognize that in the gospel? You are a person loved by God. You're more than what you can do. You're redeemed, forgiven, cleansed, and accepted. You see how this reversal of blessing works? So you can recognize a kingdom person when poverty or grief or exclusion hits, it doesn't end their world. They grow through it. They can value the experience of suffering because they know it can produce something in them that will last forever. I mean, when was the last time you really felt close to God? Was it when everything was going so easy? Usually not. Again, it doesn't mean you have to go find persecution and poverty. Sometimes, honestly, you grow close to God when you draw close to brokenhearted people. You ever notice that? You get alongside somebody who's really hurting draws you close to God. You need his resources to care well for that person. And Christian has the resources to deal with these things. They can take or lose all the things that the world prizes. They don't have to have them and they don't have to not have them because they're not controlled by them. You see, a Jesus uh, person is someone who, who recognizes that, that God has reversed fortunes with you. Uh, he's become poor so you could receive his blessings. He's become hungry so you could be satisfied. He's wept bitterly so you can have his joy. And ultimately at the cross we see he's utterly rejected and excluded so that you could have his acceptance and his place at his table. He gives you a fresh start in a new life. Have you trusted him for that? You can today. You can say, I need that. I need him to reverse fortunes with me. I need his acceptance and grace. 
And that's how Jesus can say, when you don't have any of what the world prizes, but you have me, guess what? You have everything. You're blessed. You can prize that life. All right, finally, last thing this morning, I want to ask the so what question. Like, so what? So what? Okay, there's a life that's pitiable to Jesus, a life that's prized to him based on what kinds of people receive his grace and the capacity it gives them. But so what? Three things for you this morning. First of all, it means that we can live free of musts. Um, here's what I mean by that. Um, when, when you're part of the old kingdom, the right side up kingdom, money, comfort, success, recognition, and control, man, those can, or recognition, those control you, don't they? Like, I have to have these things in order to feel like I have value. I have to have you like me in order to feel like I have value. I have to be popular. I have to be in the right group. I have to have enough stuff that makes me look like a valuable person. But when you know where your value comes from, when your deep paraclesis and your comfort comes from the Spirit of God, which means relationship with God, then you can say, I can take or leave that stuff. My deep satisfaction comes in knowing I have a place in God's economy, and I'm free from the control of those things. I'm part of a bigger story. Now, on one hand, Jesus says, woe to those who are comforted by what they possess. Um, there are also those who long to be comforted by what I could possess, right? Um, and he's saying, you don't have to have that. You don't need... To have something you don't have to have deep satisfaction when you have me. And we're sometimes tempted to say, if I only had that, then I'd be truly happy. If I only had whatever it was. Jesus is saying, you don't need that for paraclesis. You have me. And this isn't always easy. And I'm going to be really honest and maybe even look stupid, but I think we're probably more alike than we are different. And I want to say, like, this is challenging stuff. Because sometimes, like, when it's late at night and I'm, like, stressed out over my temporary situation, it's really easy to kind of just start to drift off into a fantasy world of what if I just had this many square feet or what if I just had this in my bank account or what if I just, uh, if I could just accomplish this. And you start to be comforted by thoughts that are grounded in fantasy rather than reality. Because I'm not taking my reality to the God who is trustworthy to handle it. And that... Honestly, friends, is a challenge. And I'm not saying it's bad to dream, we should, but when our thoughts that begin to console us are ones that further us from the grace of God, then we're moving in a pitiable direction. And I want to say, too, that what you have can be a blessing and it can be a woe. And it all depends on the attitude through which you receive it. See, it's a blessing when you say, oh, what a gift, I want to share it. Because that is how Jesus has acted towards me. He shared his life for my sake. How could I not share what I have with those in need? I won't go into it right now, but write Job 31 down somewhere in your notes. Go read Job's understanding of justice. He's a rich man, and yet he says, I've done justice. Read what he describes as just. It's going to rock your world. It's good stuff, okay? Um, The second thing here, we live favorably towards the marginalized. Um, This is the second way that this this message should shape the way we live. Um, There's this great reversal of values that shapes, shapes us. It creates a new heart where we actually long to bless those that God blesses. And so rather than racing to the top, we become sensitive to the crowd at the bottom. So I have to have what's at the top. We say, I actually want to become downwardly mobile and outwardly focused rather than upwardly mobile and inwardly focused. 
because I recognize that that's what God has done to me. He's treated me this way. And so I want to be able to reach out to the ones who are marginalized, to the ones who are most vulnerable. A great example of that was what happened in this building yesterday, you guys. How many of you helped out with the Compassion Clinic? What a great investment of time and energy and kingdom resources to say we want to provide medical help to those in the margins. To say, God has loved me, I want to do that. And by the way, what's so cool about Luke and Acts, it's two volumes of the same work. Um, in In volume one, Jesus says, blessed are the poor, the weeping, the hungry, the persecuted. And in volume two, Acts two, you have this amazing thing happen where the Holy Spirit comes, creates new heart, new power for the community of God to live out God's heart. And Peter preaches a great sermon, 3,000 people come to faith, and then the coolest thing happens. People start sharing stuff. Isn't that crazy? So part of why the, the volume one crowd can get blessed is because they're part of a family in volume two. Where it, it, God's not saying, oh, just continue in your horrible oppression. He said, no, you're part of a family that's going to share what it has so that you can have enough. What an amazing thing. Do you, do you know anybody today who has a need? Just think. Close your eyes and just think. Like, do I actually know anybody that has a need I can meet? Is that there? Is that present in your mind? Ask the Lord to help you. Ask, how, how does the gospel shape my actions towards the marginalized? Not only does it shape my attitudes towards my circumstances, it shapes my actions towards the marginalized. And then finally, last thing this morning, and I'll leave you, is this, that finally we live full of hope and contentment. I don't need to spend a lot of time here because we've already kind of discussed it. But the reality is, our circumstances are no longer king. Jesus is. See, our circumstances and the perspective that's driven completely by them is replaced by a long-term eternal perspective that puts every challenge in the context of an incredible and deep, satisfying love of God and His care. See, Jesus' people can say, hey, even when I'm excluded because of His name, I should rejoice because I have him. And if I have him, how much more will he take care of me through his own presence and care? But here's, our, here's the thing. Our confidence for a future and for hope doesn't come from wishful thinking. It comes because of what God's actually done in the past. It comes from his faithfulness in the past through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Someone asked one time um, a famous missiologist named Leslie Newbegin who um, they said, are you pessimistic or optimistic about the future of the church? And he had this response. He said, I, neither one, but Jesus is alive. Right? I'm not pessimistic, which says it's never going to work. I'm not optimistic, which says, gosh, I hope it works. He says, I'm hopeful because Jesus is alive. It's the first fruits of what's to come. So Jesus pities the life that prizes what we can what we can obtain and accomplish for him, yet prizes the life that trusts him for what he alone has done and will do. So, friends, let's bring ourselves to the table today. All of ourselves. The weeping, poor, rejected parts of ourselves, as well as the rich, comfortable, well-thought-of, laughing parts of ourselves. Bring them to the table. Bring, bring all of you to the table and say, God, through what you have done, through offering your son, 
will you transform me to be an offering back to you so my life can look like Jesus's. Come be nourished by his acceptance of you, by his grace, body given and bloodshed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the goodness of the gospel that in Jesus Christ we have the resources to live this kind of way, this upside down kingdom way. We love you. We thank you for the radical nature of your son's love. Pray that your spirit would empower us to live out this kingdom in our community as a church and in our world for the sake of your name and your mission in Jesus' name. Amen.